Hey, greetings, everyone. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West here, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. This episode of the Steadfast and Law podcast is brought to you by our dear friends at the United States Concealed Carry Association. The U.S. Concealed Carry Association was founded to help responsibly armed Americans like you prepare for the before, during, and after of a self-defense incident. Their membership truly has everything you need to gain peace of mind during these turbulent times. Members get life-saving self-defense education, industry-leading training, and self-defense liability insurance. And best of all, it is 100% risk-free with their money-back bulletproof guarantee. Don't wait until it's too late. Click Learn More to explore United States Concealed Carry Association membership. And remember, the USCCA is not an insurance company. A policy has been issued to the USCCA by Universal Fire and Casualty Insurance Company. That policy provides the association and its members with self-defense liability insurance subject to its terms, conditions, limitations, and exclusions. Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to the Steadfast and Loyal podcast. You know, now that the House GOP has taken control in the House of Representatives, one of the things that people are talking about, a lot of the different investigations that will occur with the committees of jurisdiction, and one of those investigations that people are talking about is what exactly happened in Afghanistan, that debacle that we saw that which resulted in the loss unnecessarily of the lives of 13, 11 Marines, a sailor and a soldier, and also the incredible leaving of so many Americans and interpreters and and translators that helped us in Afghanistan, where I spent two and a half years behind. But there's an incredible book that just recently came out, and it's called Saving Aziz by Chad Robichaux. And it is the story of my dear friend Chad Robichaux, former reconnaissance Marine, who was convicted of his heart because his country was not doing anything to go back and get his interpreter translator Aziz. But then that heart of his grew and ended up saving tens of thousands of interpreter translators and their families and getting them back to Afghanistan. This book is debuting in number one in many different uh, categories. And right now is, I believe, number 35 on Amazon. So please go out and get Saving Aziz. And joining us right now from New York City on his PR tour is Chad Robichaux. Chad Simplify, how are you doing, brother? Thanks so much, brother, for having me on. Uh, Thank you for all you do for... America and all you've done for me personally. Uh, oh. Awesome to be awesome to be on with you. Well, I'll tell you what, you and I are, are locked on forever. And let's talk about this incredible journey because here we had a, a, a situation occurring in Afghanistan, and it would have been very easy for you to sit back and say, hey, you know, it's not much that I can do about it. How was your heart so convicted to make sure that you found a way to get back into the theater 
and rescue your interpreter translator? Yeah, well, um, so there, there was things that I, that I was frustrated about, things that, and as I looked at the situation, it was like things that I couldn't do anything about and there's things that I could. Uh, you know, I couldn't do anything about, you know, President Biden withdrawing our troops from Afghanistan uh, under this premise that we we're in a 20-year war and we need to end this 20-year war and uh, we can't be in it forever, uh, which was completely, one, not true. And the mainstream media really sold that to the American people, and I think many believe it. And, and two, uh, not consistent with the historical strategy of the United States military. Uh, so when I say that, um, you know, we had 2,500 to 4,000 troops in Afghanistan uh, that, that, that at the time of the evacuation, 4,000. In 2018, the United States military shifted from a traditional uh, conventional role in fighting the Taliban to a support and advisory role of the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police. And the entire international community were participating at Bagram Air Force Base, which is the most strategic place in the globe mm -hmm. between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China. And so this was working, and it was very effective, and it was keeping the terrorists at bay in the mountains of Afghanistan by the hands of the National, Afghan National Army that we were supporting in that support and advisory role. And so to suggest that we were in this conventional war for 20 years, the endless war, we had to get out, one, is not true, and two, uh, it's, not again, not consistent with historically how we've handled things. And case in point being, Japan, where we still have 80,000 troops since World War II, and Germany, where we have 40,000 troops, and South Korea, since the Korean War, we have mm -hmm. 35,000 troops. So this was very political and very hasty, and I knew when the president uh, took office and made that announcement he was going to do that, and the way he was going to do it was really scared me for our national security, uh, scared me for the global security, and, uh, and, and, it, and then secondly, it scared me for our allies that fought beside us for so long. I couldn't do anything about that, but one thing I could do was for my friend Aziz, I could do something about getting him out. And, and I first started with the proper process of going through the State Department. He had already been in a special immigrant visa process for six years. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's only supposed to take nine months. This guy had been 15 years with Tier 1 Special Operations, access to top secret information, vetted, polygraphed, uh, and, and had done amazing service to our country. In six years, his process had not taken place. I have a lot of connections, so I'm asking people in Congress and Senate, and it's not going to happen. And I realize I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands and physically go uh, put a team together and go in the, to get my friend who had done so much for me, literally saved my life before. We did eight deployments together, uh, and, and uh, he was very, very dear to me. I think when I think it's important to, um, to, to say that most people probably assume that are listening – what an interpreter-military uh, relationship looks like. One interpreter, a large unit, you with them for a few months and then you never see them again. That may be the case sometimes, not always, but for me and Aziz, that certainly wasn't the case. Um, because of my job as an advanced force operator in my special operations unit, I worked in what's called a singleton capacity, meaning I worked by myself. Aziz was my interpreter. He was my teammate. He was my friend. For continuity purposes, we did all eight deployments together. We'd go forward of my unit to go in the, in the mountains of Afghanistan and Pakistan to build the clandestine infrastructure to put our assaulters on target to capture or kill bad guys. So we spent weeks, months together by ourselves. We got to know each other on a very personal level, put his life at risk for me every day. And I say he saved my life on three specific occasions, but he probably saved my life every minute. Like, don't walk there. Don't eat that. Don't talk to the person. If you talk right now, they're going to kill us. And then when we were done with our operation, we didn't go – he didn't go home, and I went back to the base. I went to his home. Like, that first hot meal I got from coming out of those mountains was by his wife, Atra. 
and uh, and and uh, and you know, and it, when his oldest son Mashud and Mashud, I were born and they were babies, I held them. Uh, so he's he's my friend, and, and uh, I owed him my life, and I would not have been able to uh, had any other response within me than to not do something to help him. Well, you know, and that's so critical that you bring up the difference in that one-on-one relationship. And I had the exact same thing with uh, my interpreter translators when I was there as a uh, advisor to the Afghan army, and I helped a couple of them get over here to the United States of America as well. And so you did the exact same thing under a lot tougher circumstances. What was it like to be able to go and marshal these civilian resources? And was there any time in this process where you saw your own government kind to be an impediment to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the United States government was, uh, and I say this, and I want to be very clear, the, there's many people, many women in our United States military and our United States government that wanted to do the right thing but were hamstrung and not able to. So this is not an attack on them, mm-hmm. but an attack on the institutions. The, the, the government institutions that are involved in the evacuation from the White House to the State Department to, to the Pentagon and people in the DOD, uh, absolutely prohibited uh, access to do the right thing for not only Afghan allies that we want to evacuate, but for American citizens. And that's a big statement. So I yeah. want people to realize I'm making a bold statement. They did not do their their duty and, and their diligence to the American people to keep them safe and safely evacuate them. Uh, we had, I, I should never, I, I appreciate, you know, the kind words you say to me in this, but I should never have had to do this. Uh, this no, is not right. a job of, of a civilian. I'm proud of our team. I'm proud that we got to do it, but this should not have been my job to do this. We did this in, in, in absence of our government doing the right thing. And, uh, and if there's any hope that comes from this is that I, I, and I learned this was bring hope for me when the governments of the world will not do the right thing. Good people will stand up and do the right thing. And, and we got to see yeah. that in the state and not all from the same beliefs. I mean, we had people, I had people on social media, just like your Instagram, people that hate me. And they write, they were writing me and say, I follow you because I don't like you and I want to, but, but thank you for what you're doing. You're doing the right thing. Where can I donate? And, mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that was the kind of thing we seen. We, we, uh, you know, initially I'm like, I have to put a group of, of friends together to go do this. So I looked for guys that had a couple of different attributes. One special operations guys that had ASO or AFO level training where they worked in a single ten capacity and with limited resources. That was one. Two, uh, I needed a few people with the ability to have some influence to help raise money because this was going to cost a lot of money. Uh, that's where, like, you know, Tim Kennedy had both. Uh, and, uh, and, then, and then lastly, I wanted mature men that had already been through combat and what niching to go and get into trouble because getting that fight because the last thing you need in something like this is somebody that wants to go get some. And, uh, and, and creates an incident or, or makes things worse. We wanted mature people that were not like looking to go out there and, uh, and get into any kind of scrimmages or anything with the Taliban. And so I put together this team. And, uh, and as we're putting together this team, uh, we're going to get Aziz, his wife, and six kids. And one of our, one of our teammates pointed out something very, very uh, important to me to take my selfishness out of the equation. He said, uh, hey, there's this group of 3,500 orphans. And it was kind of a moment where we all paused and said, at least for me, I said, man, we're going to get Aziz's family, but there's so many more people. We had this incredible experience, Green Berets, Force Recon Marines. Uh, uh, we had guys from Delta Force and, and SEALs, and we had uh, some CIA ground branch guys with paramilitary officer experience. We had a lot of experience. In addition, we had a, a, every one of us had this like burden on our heart that I believe God put in our heart to go do the right thing. And we're like, we have the willingness, we have the experience, 
let's help as many people as we can. Americans, women, children, uh, Christians that be persecuted, interpreters. And so we made a decision uh, to, to do that. But I believe we got a lot of credit since. Like I got that Bonhoeffer Achievement Award and Congress recognized us. The only thing I'm not proud of us and would say that I take credit for the fact that we had that burden and we were obedient to that burden to go help. Beyond that, Alan, uh, I can't take any credit for it. The Bible says in Second Corinthians uh, eleven thirty that if you boast, boast of your weakness. Yeah, look, I, I'm not. I'm not capable of this. I'm not smart enough. Uh, we're all. All of us were pretty old. There's a lot of gray hair in our group. We were an <laughs> 18 man, uh, but but uh, we were just being obedient, and then we witnessed God do a sheer miracle in the following days. And when, when I say we've seen a miracle, like there was a series of events that happened in three days. Every one of them should have been an absolute impossibility. And if any one of them would have not worked, this wouldn't have happened. The first was Sarah Barardo got permission from the Joint Chiefs to allow us as civilians to go in Hkaya Airport, which is DOD controlled, to yeah. do civilian evacuations. That's an impossibility. Yeah. Uh, and, and the fact that that happened was a sheer miracle. Secondly, we knew that we were moving people out that didn't have visas. We're going to move them out of Afghanistan and, and we can't bring them to the United States, but we got a lot of heat for that. People are saying like, you bring in anybody in America. I'm not in the state department. I don't have the power to do that. Right. I, I was able to get them out of the country, but where we bring them is, uh, I mean, if you don't bring people with, without a visa to another country and bring them to a humanitarian center in a humanitarian, uh, uh, scenario, then you're human trafficking people. And, uh, that's only allowed in Laredo, Texas. So uh, <laughs> tell us about it. Anywhere else in the real world, you have to have permission. So we called the royal family and they, and they uh, of the UAE we called the royal family yeah. of the UAE, and they gave us permission to use their humanitarian center. And then they said, then with miracles keep coming in, they're like, not only that, but we'll give you doctors and food, and we're going to provide the facility and take care of these people. And uh, and just went red, rolled the red carpet out. And they said, in addition to that, we're going to give you a C-17 plane with pilots, and if you fill that up. Uh, we'll send you another one. And then the next day, uh, Glenn Beck, uh, a friend of ours uh, from uh, The Blaze and Mercury One, he did. He, everybody wanted to do something. He did what he knew how to do. He got behind his microphone. He asked for help. He thought he was going to raise dollars, but he ended up raising millions of dollars. And he didn't. He called me and said, I don't know where to put this for a ground level effort. And I was like, I know exactly where you need to put it. Yeah. We're going to start. We're going to start paying for airplanes. And uh, so all these things came together in one divine moment. That allowed us to ultimately rescue 17,000 people, and 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 you know when we first got to uh, that airport, I got disease at the door right now. I'm gonna go sneak over and let him in. <laughs> yeah, Chad's gonna go in and get uh, Azula Aziz, his interpreter, so we can have him on the show as well. <laughs> Azul, Aziz, Aziz, how are you? <laughs> I'm fine, thank you, sir. It's so good to see you. Welcome to New York City. I wish it was a little bit better than it is right now. But Aziz, from what I have been told, you were able to look up in Times Square and see yourself there on a billboard in Times Square. What was that like? It was so amazing. It was incredible. I didn't ever think about this, that one day I will be walking over here and my picture will be hanging over there. It's so incredible. It's, it's I was just praising the Lord about that, and you know, uh, it's, it's. I don't even have any word or sentence about that. But that 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 was so uh, exciting and, and you know, uh, incredible. How was uh, your wife and your six children? How are they adjusting uh, to being here in America? And and uh, also, if I'm all right, being down there in Texas with us. Uh, 
Yes, uh, they have been adjusting uh, pretty cool. Uh, they, they, it was one of their wishes to make it to the United States because this is the only land that has all kinds of rights and freedom and opportunities. They are so happy and, and, and excited. They have already made uh, friends in the neighborhood, in the school, at the church, and uh, uh, they, they are doing uh, their uh, studies. And uh, sometimes uh, they, they try to teach me English now. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> pretty good. Well, make sure they're not teaching you the slang English. Make sure they stay with the right proper <laughs> English. Says y'all. Yeah. Y'all, that's good. Y'all. y'all is a, is a word. Y'all, yeah. Now, now, Chad and, and Aziz, you know, one of the things that we saw with the Biden administration really was a level of incompetence when it came to clearances and, and doing the background checks of people. How were you able to facilitate the visa process and everything for Aziz? Well, you know, for Aziz, Aziz is like SIV candidate, which is the special immigrant visa. These are interpreters and uh, those who serve directly in the contract with the United States military. Uh, so you had you had uh, several groups. You had uh, you had we had green card holders and American citizens, blue passport holders. We have green card holders. You had uh, SIV applicants uh, like Aziz, and you had uh, and and then you had those who didn't have the application yet, but they had a contract number. Uh, to the United States, they served with them. Then you also had P1, P2 visas, which were uh, people that have that qualify for for status to come to America based on uh, different things. Maybe like a maybe they were an orphan or a widow uh, or a, in a in a group that been persecuted. Maybe they worked with the military non contractually. Uh, and then there was also those in humanitarian parole, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, so they had these different groups of people. Uh, so when the uh, in it, when the Biden administration started taking a lot of pressure, I think, during the evacuation. They wanted to move numbers out. And so they cracked open the gate of, that, of the airport yeah. and, and, and opened what would be just sheer chaos. Yeah. Uh, because that outside the gates of the airport was probably one of the most desperate situations that you could ever imagine in your life. I mean, oh, it was worse than Vietnam. Yeah, it was yeah. worse than what we saw from Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, people, people crowds. I mean, imagine a mom so desperate that she crowd surfs a baby. Uh, kisses it goodbye and crowd surfs the baby to the chance that it'll make it over that wall. And then when it gets to the wall, someone takes it and throws it as hard and high as they can to get it over that wall. What they didn't realize was on the other side of that wall was six feet high of Constantino wire, about 20 feet deep. My buddy Joe Roberts counted six babies in there that bled out. I mean, that level of desperation. You know, people were saying, like, oh, those guys are stupid for hanging on airplanes. That Maybe they were stupid, but that's desperation. Yeah. And uh, and so when, they were, when the military would crack open that gate, to let people in, who do you think is going to come through? Yeah. Not the women, not the children, the strongest. I mean, it's like drowning, right? The strongest get on yeah. top of the crowd and drown everyone else. That's who made it through. That's why those planes you saw the military flying out were full of males, and they were not vetted. They didn't know who they were, and they didn't fly them to a third-party country. They flew them right to the United States where they were able to walk away. So a lot of the criticism we got was that we were bringing people that we didn't know we were bringing to the United States. Uh, one, that wasn't true because we were not under the same criteria. We had to vet our people. Two, I'm not the State Department, so I can't bring people to the United States. I can bring them to a third-party country. But I shared that concern that every other American shared, like, who's coming to our country? Who are these people? And uh, and, and I still I still share that concern. Who made it in? Uh, mm-hmm. This is you know another immigration debacle. Uh, for us, the, the difference for us is we had to – anybody that we got, we had to have a, a manifest approved. Uh, through the Joint Chiefs. And all, this is the case for any NGOs. We were the only ones on the ground getting people out. But any NGOs that want, we had to, you had to the manifest approved. So Sarah Berardo, we get, we'd have a 
kind of rescue list to tar- build a target package based on people that had documentation. We'd send our ground teams out. We'd be coordinating. We linked them up. We had about seven uh, seven point process of bona fides to make sure they're the right person. That way, and, and there was a, like, some safety protocols be, during the link up that I won't that I want to give up the TTPs on how we do that. Yeah. But uh, but we were making sure that they were who they said they were and they had the right documentation because we knew if we pulled people out that didn't have the documentation, they would be stuck somewhere. We wouldn't be helping them because yeah. uh, we don't have the ability. Again, we're not the State Department. We bring them back into the airport, get that manifest manifested on one of our flights, and then fly them to Abu Dhabi uh, to the humanitarian center, and then they're held there. And then at that point, the State Department decides whether they want to bring the United States or they go to Brazil or Canada or somewhere mm-hmm. else. But uh, you know, at that point, it's out of our hands. Uh, a lot of people, you know, breaks my heart reaching out to us and like, why'd you bring us out here and you you didn't get us back to America? We never were able to make promises. We get people to America. We were only able to promise that we could help get them away from the Taliban in that, in that intense moment. Well, in the so that end, was the difference. Yeah, in the end, what was the final number that you were able to get out of that theater uh, of Afghanistan? So, um, when we were when we were doing airport evacuations, uh, of course, we got Aziz and his wife and six kids out. And that week, we didn't know how much time we had. Everything went very quickly. Uh, I mean, if you stop to sleep for five minutes, you're like, someone's dying because I'm sleeping for five minutes. My friend Seaspray lost 37 pounds in 10 days. Wow. Uh, and after that 10 days, it ended when the Abbey Gate blew up. Uh, and it didn't blow up. It was blown up. It killed 13 of our service members mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, and 200, 200 Afghan civilians and, and injured hundreds more. Uh, and then the military welded those gates shut and evacuations were over. But when that happened, uh, Colonel, we we the United States military did not want to leave. By the way, they wanted to do the right thing. The, it was the White House that took the neo operation, the non combatant evacuation operation, away from the DOD, gave it to the State Department, which created that stra- that that uh, tragedy. It was the United States White House that that, that gave a date to, to withdraw and not terms. I didn't agree with the withdrawal, but if they were going to withdraw, then we should have said we'll leave when every American's out, yeah, when conditions all our out, when every yeah. When every interpreter's out, we'll leave then. And if you get in the way, we're not leaving. Yeah. Uh, but you don't give a date. When, and then they tried to renegotiate a date. And the Taliban said no, and they buckled to it. But the military had to leave because they were forced to by our White House. But we, as civilians, didn't have to. And uh, and one of the things because – and by the way, to answer your question, at that point, 10 days in, we had got 12,000 people out. We had tallied up the numbers. But we still knew we had to stay. And, uh, and the, one of the reasons we stayed is one – we knew Americans were still there. I, I, it's not debatable to me. Uh, people tried to debate me on this, and I'm like, I'm not even going to have this conversation. The White House said there was 100. We, I'll tell you, there were thousands of Americans still there. Yeah. And the White House was saying, well, we got all the ones out that want to leave. The Taliban held out a checkpoint. The Taliban checked those blue passports and took them away from people, sent people away. The Taliban was killing people at those checkpoints. These people wanted to get out, but they didn't want to go past the Taliban, the people that we put there. I don't blame Americans for not wanting to. I don't blame Green Corps holders for not wanting to go through there. The Taliban controlled who got in and out of that airport. Uh, and we knew those people were still there. And by the way, it doesn't matter. The White House is right and there was 100, and I'm, and, or I'm wrong and there were 1,000. One American, one American left behind is one too many. We don't leave Americans behind in, in, in situations like that. And where I come from, like we're literally scorched to earth to go get an American that's left behind, even though we know we're going to lose people. And, uh, and, and that is a promise that American people should have from their government. And, and so we chose to stay. We worked with a lot of other incredible organizations, the Mighty Oaks Foundation, Save Our Allies, Task Force Argo, like uh, Pineapple Express. All these other organizations worked with 
in a place called Tamaza Sharif. And we, we did for two months, we got another 5,000 people out, totaling about 17,000. Yeah. And then we chose to uh, do one last ditch effort to help the best way we could. And there was uh, all the thousands of people moved to this place called the Panjir Valley. Yep, and know for, it well. Yep, yep, I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh, and, and in the Panjir Valley, Ahmad Massoud's son yep. started leading a resistance there. And that was the last resistance fighters in Afghanistan. And this is like, uh, this is around. Um, uh, around October, uh, uh, and so we were, uh, we had decided to uh, help them cross into the Tajikistan because they were trying to cross. But if you know geography there, know you do. But for the listeners, that area has like twenty five thousand foot peaks. If you make it through one of these mountain valleys, this could take you a week to get through with women and children. And then when you get to the end, if you make it past all the Taliban checkpoints, you might end up in a thousand foot cliff, or or the Panjir River that borders Tajikistan is Category Five rapids. Mm-hmm. in some places and the water is like ice melt like yep. it's so cold so like in and then outside of the geography of the challenges you had the chinese military mm-hmm. saturated that border because their interest in afghanistan the russian military saturated that border to keep the afghans in afghanistan the tajik military guarded that border and, and, and of course the taliban was all through the border so what they needed was someone to go on the other side and provide information of where to cross yep. and so that's what recon marines do well uh, fording reps and route reps, and so I, uh, I ended up uh, rallying a, the, a teammate uh, named Sashorn Dennis Price. A long story about him, but the Marine Corps actually cut him loose for a humanitarian mission to come assist me. I don't think they realized what they were doing at the time, but I'm so mm-hmm. thankful for Lieutenant Colonel Tommy Waller who did that and allowed Sashorn Dennis Price to come. Force Recon Marine, Scout Sniper, he's actually here with us right now. Great. And, uh, and the two of us went to Tajikistan, traveled about 12 hours through this mountain, just spent 10 days. On, the, on that border, we did 90 miles of border reconnaissance. Uh, again, Chinese military, Russian military, Taliban, within like 30 yards of us at times. And we, we were swim every night. We swim in Afghanistan, and we built ended up building six routes out to pass information on to our, our government agencies that wanted that information, to NGOs that were helping evacuate, and to the, the commandos of the Afghan people to help get them across. So we don't know how many people were able to help there, uh, but uh, you know, it, it, we know we. Uh, we felt that that was our last effort that we could yeah. do the right thing and help as many people that couldn't help themselves. So. Last question to you, Aziz. Uh, you're here in America. You know, we talk about America being a great land of opportunity, but your heart still has to be with your family and, and other friends back in Afghanistan. What is your hope for exactly. Afghanistan? Yes, yes, exactly. It's, it's really difficult and uh, challenging. I have been through uh, lots of hardships and difficulties. And when it comes uh, about the feelings, uh, definitely it was a country where I was born to. I had the hope and I took the opportunity and used it to fight for freedom, democracy, women's rights, children's rights, uh, almost two decades of my life. I was enjoying working over there with the U.S. military because on one hand, I was able to uh, help my colleague, my American colleagues. And on the other hand, I was able to help the, the country that has been uh, torn uh, or in the war for, for decades. Yeah. And I was really enjoying it. So uh, for me, it was an opportunity. It was a work of God. And uh, it was uh, really loving. Well, Chad Robichaud and Aziz, uh, Sir Edmund Burke once said, 
All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And both of you have shown that you are good men because you stood up uh, to evil uh, in that country and also in rescuing others. I do hope and pray that you get the opportunity, both of you, to testify during congressional hearings about Afghanistan because the American people need to know the truth. And furthermore, to everyone out there, please pick up this book that I got my personal copy that was signed by my dear brother Chad and also by Aziz because this is what it's all about. Americans do not sit around and allow for evil to triumph. When their government believes that they cannot do anything, Americans always do something. That's our spirit. So God bless you all. Enjoy your time up there in New York. Stay safe up there because, yeah. you know, they release too many criminals out on the streets. We don't want to survive Afghanistan and yeah. swimming across the river in Uzbekistan <laughs> and get, get mugged in, uh, in New York. I know. <laughs> exactly. well, uh, you know not, man. Yeah. I think everyone should also remember that Chad Robichaud is an MMA, uh, like, champion. So maybe if you're a criminal in New York and you're watching this podcast, don't mess with a guy that looks like him. Okay. All right. So (laughs) we will see y'all when you get back here to Texas. God bless you all. Semper Fidelis, steadfast and loyal. Love you, Colonel. Take care, guys. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much for joining us for this episode of the Staff Fashion Law Podcast. Special thanks to Chad Robichaud and also his dear friend, former interpreter and translator, Aziz. What an incredible story of how an ordinary American, a former reconnaissance Marine, said that my service to my nation and to my fellow man is not over. And where my government cannot meet the standard, achieve the objective, I will do so myself. That's what America's all about. If you like this podcast, please hit that like button and share it with others. Until next time, steadfast and more. Before they burn it down.